What do you think it would be like to uproot, go and live in a foreign land? A place that's different from what you're accustomed to with different food, a different language, different beliefs, different customs, even a different religion than you have. How would you learn to navigate life in that place? Do you think it would be difficult? What do you think your response would be? Would you want to flee or would you seek to thrive? Would you want to blend in? Do you think it would be difficult to stay faithful? How would your worship be affected as you lived in that place? And do you think that you would have to compromise anything in your walk with Christ while you were there? Over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at the life of a few men who experienced that very thing. They did not go on a mission trip to a foreign country. They didn't go on a six-month visa somewhere. Those men were captives of war. They were brought into another country to permanently live. There was no going back to their old land. They were exiles in a foreign land. How is that relevant for us today? How can we stand to learn from their story? Because you and I, we've not been carried off by a foreign power. We've not captives of war. We've not been forced to march to a new place to live for the rest of our lives. But as Christians, we do live, in a sense, as foreigners in a strange place. A place that we do call our home. But we're pilgrims. We're passing through. Strangers in a strange land. And there is, there's not a particular country out there that we could move to and, and change that. Wouldn't matter where you uprooted and go while you're here on earth, there is no place that you could call heaven on earth. There's no Christian kingdom for us to pack our bags and move off to. A place where all the people worship the Lord and enjoy continual fellowship with Him without sin, always and always. Now we are waiting for that final heavenly place while we are here on earth. And living here, would you admit, can be uncomfortable. You ever uncomfortable here on earth? You ever uncomfortable with the laws that you live under? Now there are joys for us to experience for sure, but there are daily Reminders that this is not our home. Christ is not honored here. Hopefully He is here. Just a little sidebar, you know, church is to be heaven on earth in a sense. Granted, we're still sinners, we're still being sanctified, we're still being changed, but that is what the church is supposed to be. It is like an outpost in the midst of all the world. It's supposed to be a secure place. This is supposed to represent a heavenly country amongst God's people. But out there, not so much. Because Christ is not honored out there. The masses are in rebellion against God. Rulers and kings often abuse their power, and the people have no fear of the Lord. And yet, this is where God has chosen to put us. In this place, in this time. Have you ever thought to yourself, like, you know, I really wish that I would have lived in such and such day. I think that often. Like, I think I was made for a different time and a different era. 
Well, not according to God. Because he put me here. And he put you here. He knew exactly what he was doing. What does he want for us while we're here? How are we supposed to live while we're here? What does faithfulness look like while we are here? There is plenty for us to learn from the story of Daniel and his friends. Read with me Daniel chapter 1. It won't be on the screen in front of you. I'll be reading from the ESV, and I'm going to read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 21. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow himself not to be defiled. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Please bless the preaching of it. Please lead us, Lord, to be convicted, to be convinced that we are to live in this land faithfully without compromise. Lead us to have wisdom to do it. We pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen. In those first seven verses, we're given something of an introduction as to what was taking place at this time. The story starts suddenly with war. Nebuchadnezzar, we're told, who is the king of Babylon, he came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And when a city is sieged, it means that it is surrounded where nothing can come out and nothing can go in in hopes that those people will just surrender. And often it took place by starvation. When no food is coming into the city and all their supplies run out, eventually they want to eat and they turn themselves over to the, to the people who are sieging their city. And we are not told any information about what has happened before all of this. Anything that leads up to this event, just that King Nebuchadnezzar is there to lay siege to Jerusalem. And verse 2 says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands, along with some of the holy things that were in the temple. So God gave the city over to Nebuchadnezzar and some of the things that were in the temple to be carried away to the house of the gods of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And so here we show up at the very beginning reading this and see that Jerusalem is being sacked, and not just for its stuff, but also for its best people. The Babylonians gathered together some of the Israelites, we're told, who were youths without blemish, of good appearance, and competent to stand in the king's palace. These young men were from the nobility. They were of the royal family. This was supposed to be the cream of the crop that Jerusalem had to offer. And they were being taught the wisdom and the ways of Babylon. Their literature. They're going to be taught their language. They would eat the best of the food straight from the king's table. And each of these men, we are told, would receive new names. And so each of them, Daniel and his four friends, all of them had names that represented something of their God. It spoke about their God and who He was, who they belonged to. For instance, Daniel's name means, God is my judge. God is my judge. And so their identity through their names was wrapped up in their God. But when they were sent to Babylon, new names were assigned to them. They were now associated with the gods of Babylon. These young men were in the Babylonian re-education program, intended to force them to leave behind their former manner of life and make them full-fledged Babylonians. And then there's conflict. Conflict comes through a test. A line was drawn that Daniel and his friends determined they would not pass so again, just a reminder, new names are given to them. But that wasn't the line. Foreign education, they proceeded with that. They were placed under the care of the chief eunuch. You know, eunuch is not a word that we normally use in our culture anymore, is it? How many of you all know what a eunuch is? A few? Eunuchs were men who had some of their male organs removed. So they would be no threat to the king's women. And apparently, Daniel and his friends, because they are placed under the care of the chief eunuch, were made eunuchs. But the line in the sand was not there either. And so in every way, these Israelite men were made Babylonians until it came to the food. 
Daniel resolved, we're told, that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Why was the line placed here? Why here? Was Daniel not defiled? We're said he's, he's, he didn't want to be defiled with the king's food, but was he not defiled in any way by living in the house of a pagan king in a foreign country? Was there no defiling that took place? Was he not going to still be eating food grown in Babylon? That the people in that land ate themselves? Why was he not concerned with eating? Why was he so concerned with eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine from his table? We are not told Daniel's reasoning. But it is clear through what we are told that this is the point where Daniel and his friends said, this is far enough. This means that this might have been the last point, the last place where these men were still able to have some distinctive element, something that made them different than the Babylonians, something that set them apart They still told themselves, at least, that they belonged to the Lord and did not belong to King Nebuchadnezzar nor to the Babylonian gods. They made a commitment among themselves that they would continue to honor the Lord while they lived in a foreign land. So Daniel asks the chief of the eunuchs, to allow him to eat differently than everybody else, that he would not defile himself. And God gave, we're told, Daniel favor with the chief of the eunuchs. And it says that he had compassion on Daniel, but that compassion did not lead him to make a change to Daniel's diet. He says, if I bring you in before the king and you look sicker and thinner and weaker than everybody else because you're not eating of the best food, guess what's going to happen? That's my head. He wasn't willing to lose that. And so we don't know if he recommended that Daniel talk to anybody else, but Daniel goes to the next man in charge, the man that was immediately in charge of him, the steward of the chief of the eunuchs. And he asks him the same thing, but instead this time he says, just let me do a test a test run of this, and let's just see what happens. If you will only give me and my friends vegetables to eat and water to drink, and if we look good after those 10 days, will you allow us to continue? And the steward directly above Daniel gives him the go-ahead. He allows him to take this test. Now, I want to stop right here for a disclaimer. Daniel and his friends were not doing this diet to lose weight, okay? He wasn't trying to be healthier. The king's food was healthy food, the best in the land. And I'm sure that the chief who oversaw this program knew what was the best food for these men to eat. This was not his first rodeo. He'd done this before. He knew what they needed to eat. But a lot of modern marketers in our day have used Daniel's diet to promote healthier living. Look what happened with Daniel and his friends. They ate healthier. They knew how to eat healthier than the Babylonians. That is not what is going on here. 
Daniel is not concerned with his health or his figure, okay? Daniel is concerned about his worship. He's concerned about his worship. And what happens here in Daniel's story is not the result of a man who eats better food than everybody else and looks healthier because of it. No, what happens here is that Daniel and his friends eat worse food than everyone else and yet still somehow look healthier. He and his friends were asking for a miracle to happen, and God gave them one. After ten days of vegetables and water, Daniel and his friends should have walked in before that steward looking sick and tired and weak. They had not eaten rich food. They had had several dinners of herbs. That's what they ate. You want to lose weight? Eat only vegetables and water for 10 days, and I'm betting that's what happens. That is the natural outcome of that. But this was supernatural. We're told that they were better in appearance, and what? Fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. They gained weight. They got bigger. How did that happen? Not from Daniel's breakthrough diet plan for four easy installments of $24.99, but from Daniel's reliance on God. That's what we're supposed to see here. God cared for these faithful young men who had chosen to commit their ways to Him while they lived in a foreign land. We're supposed to see that God provided for them. That's what happened. And not only do we see His provision during those 10 days of the test, we see that God provided for them for the duration of their training. Look at verse 17. It says, As for these four youths, God gave them. Key words. God did this. He gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first day of King Cyrus." He had a long time there in Babylon, and he was always better than all of the rest that were before the king. Why? Because God gave them these things. God provided for them. And so at the end of this period of time, who knows how long it was? Let's just say there was a few years. Nobody else is, is, is aware that Daniel and his friends are only eating these vegetables and only drinking this water. And then the chief of the eunuchs brings Daniel in. And what do you think? He's like, look how magnificent these Israelite youths are by our skillful program. Look how wonderful a job that I have done in preparing them for this examination. And Daniel and his four friends, they knew. 
They knew that the only reason that they were 10 times better, literally it means 10 hands better, they were better than five men apiece. Why? Because God provided. He cared for them. He gave these things to them and made them flourish in the land, in this foreign place, as they stayed faithful to Him without compromise. They stayed true to their God. And there are two basic, powerful truths that I want you to see from our text today that still applies to God's people and encourage us more than 2,600 years after the events that we read of here. Two truths. The first one, God was in control of the exile. God was in control of the exile. I mentioned that we weren't given any background of this story when it began. The author does not tell us why the Babylonians have shown up, why they've come to besiege Jerusalem. But you find those answers throughout the Old Testament history and the prophets. God told His people before they ever went into the promised land that if they did not stay faithful to His word, if they did not obey His law, that He would send them out of the land that He was giving to them and that they would be exiles. It took about 800 years, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of dry seasons, a lot of sin, a lot of warnings for that day to come, but that is what is happening when we show up here at the first of Daniel. God is sending His people out of the land. So we read, the Lord gave the king of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar could have showed up to the gates of the city and God could have thwarted him with little to no effort of his people if he had wanted to. But he didn't want to do that. It was time. It was time for judgment to come to his people. It was time for them to become exiles in a foreign place. And that is why God gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. This was the Lord's doing. He was overseeing all of this. But to a man on the ground that day, if you were there in Jerusalem that day, do you think that's what would have been going through your mind? Think to the man on the ground who's witnessing all of this. It wouldn't have looked that way at all. It would have looked like chaos. Hard to make sense of it all. Questions of God's faithfulness would have been popping into that man's mind. God, where are you in all of this? I thought you were caring for us. I thought we were your special people. Where are you? It doesn't look like you are here at all. Have you given us up? And to some of those people who lived during that time, they may have never been able to see in their own lifetime God's redemption. They wouldn't have seen the people come back in the days of Cyrus. They wouldn't have seen the temple being rebuilt. They wouldn't have seen the walls going back up. It would have all looked bleak. But God had not given them up in spite of the way it looked. We can't always judge by outward appearances, can we? We read here that God chose to be at work in a clear and obvious way in the lives of these four men. 
And I'm sure that his hand of blessing, his sovereign power were seen in some other ways with some other people during the exile. We know that was the case with Queen Esther. We know that was the case with Nehemiah and probably many others that we don't know their names. But in the big picture, big picture to the common man, all would have looked lost, desperate, tragic, hard to see God's hand in it all. And this is where we need to see a connection to our own day. Have you ever said, God, are you out there? What are you doing? It sure doesn't look like I can see anything right now. Open my eyes, God. Please show me where you are at work. And why are your people being swallowed up out here? We know that you have the power to show up and save them and do mighty works of wonders to the eyes of the people. Why aren't you doing that? Why is your righteousness and your power so hidden from the eyes of men? Why is revival not coming to our community? That's what we're praying for, right? You're praying for that, right? We're praying for revival here in South Buffalo. We're praying for Western New York. We're praying for our country. And God knows, if anybody knows, that prayer is needed for our country. Why has truth been abandoned? Why has the gospel not been believed? You can set it down back there. That'd be fine. Thank you. You can stick around too if you want. All right, brother. Big picture right now, things look pretty bleak in our day too. Godlessness reigns in the eyes of men, but the truth of the matter is, is that God still reigns in reality. He still rules, whether our eyes can see it clearly or not. He is still steering this world on its course. He was in control of the exile in Daniel's day. He was. He tells us he was, no matter what it looked like to those men who lived during that time. And he is in control of the exile today. God's people need to hear that. We have not been sent away from our homeland, but we have come at some point or another to realize at the moment of faith that we are not in our homeland. We're not home. We're pilgrims. We're strangers. We're wanderers. We're tent dwellers. That's what we are here. Our hopes are not laid up for us in this world. They are somewhere else, and our hearts yearn for that place, our real home. Are you homesick? I'm homesick. And God has placed a witness inside of us that we are not home. We should be homesick here because we don't belong here, not ultimately. We came to our senses somewhere in the pig pen of life that we're in a foreign land. And Daniel's story reminds us that God has not forgotten His people. His world is not spinning out of control. We live in God's world, though that truth often seems hidden. 
And the people who belong to him should find comfort today being reminded of the truth that he is in control of our exile, our times, our boundaries, our seasons, the length of our life. What we accomplish here is all under his sovereign care. He is bringing the world to its appointed end, and you have a role in that. You are not misplaced. You're here in this place for a reason. God has a purpose for you to bring him glory while you live in this foreign land. So God was in control of the exile. But God also cares for his exiles. He cares for you. He cares for me. When Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, wrote what we call 1 Peter, he addressed it to the elect exiles of those who were scattered. Elect exiles, he calls it the dispersion. It just means the scattering of God's people. The idea is of the sower who's thrown seed in a field, and God has, in a sense, scattered His people all across the world, His field. And Peter wanted to encourage those people that in their scattered state, us in that scattered state, that they were still cared for and loved by God. And the promise is is that the Lord will someday bring in the harvest, but until that time, His grace and His peace will be multiplied to you to grow you until maturity, until you are ready to be brought into the barn. So the entire story of Daniel is one that demonstrates the sovereignty of God over everything, and that is kings and nations and histories, not just in the little land of Israel, but extending to the most far reaches in the corners of the world. Here, God's sovereignty extends here in Buffalo, New York. God still cares for individuals, His people, who live in all of these places. God's care extends to you. He cares about you. He is walking alongside of you. He says He indwells you through faith in Jesus Christ. We have mayors, we have governors, we have presidents who claim for themselves power, and what they do does affect us, right? But the Lord Jesus rules the kings of the earth from His throne. No one supersedes Him. And He loves and cares for His people in the matters of day-to-day life. While we are here in this foreign world, and to the eyes of men under foreign powers. He has a purpose for us in Babylon. And if that were not so, we would not be here if He is the sovereign. Nobody can stay His hand. So if I'm here, He wants me here. And He's telling me that He cares for me and He cares for you. Daniel and his friends, they committed themselves to live for the Lord in that foreign country, and God preserved them, protected them, and they experienced hardships in the land. We're going to read about those in the coming weeks. We're not guaranteed the same kind of protection that they had, but we are guaranteed the same God that they had, a God who loved them and a God who loves us. And we don't understand everything that happens to us while we're here, but we can be assured that the Lord is in it with us. Do you believe that this morning? 
He has committed himself to us. You read this a little while ago about the blood of Jesus Christ. He bought us with his blood. That's how important it was that he had a people for himself. And he will not let you go. Jesus has not died for nothing. He died for you. He died to bond himself to his people for always. And if you are here, and you are his, and you are trusting in his blood, you can rest assured that you have not been abandoned to yourself as an orphan or to the power of worldly kings. In spite of appearances, the Lord Jesus is intimately caring for you, bringing you what, you, what, you, what is needed in your life for your good. And so I ask, does something hurt in your life right now? Any hurting people here? Any things that are pressing on your minds or pressing on your hearts? Is there something that you want changed in your life right now? Is there something that is uncertain? Is there an obstacle of some sort? Whatever it is, it is not there by chance. It has its part in God's plan to make you into the image of His Son while you are here. God is sovereignly ruling over your days in Babylon, giving you what you need along the way, blessing you with His favor, whether you have eyes to see it or not. And hopefully this text this morning will give you reason to praise Him for your care. And so twice here in Daniel's personal story in this chapter, we're told that God gave. God gave something to him to demonstrate his care. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Now, I don't know how Daniel and his friends perceived that truth in the moment, and maybe they saw it all the more clearly in the years ahead, kind of like we do as we look back on our lives and can see how God worked things out. But I want you, just for a moment this morning, to reflect on all the good that God is doing in your life right now. And to know that God gave it. It's Him. Maybe your marriage, your place of employment, where you live, your friendships. Give God thanks for those. And you don't have a book named for you in the Bible recording all the events in your life giving specific instances where God has given you favor and wisdom and compassion from others. But it is happening in your life nonetheless. He is at work for you. I do believe the good things in your life could be recorded. Something like this. And God gave Danny favor as he applied for the job and compassion in the eyes of men and God granted the owner of the house and he chose to sell it to the Milnes and God gave children 
into the home of the Atwoods or the Romeros or anyone else here who has kids. And God gave repentance into the heart of Quentin. God is at work in the lives of His people if we would just see it and give Him thanks. God gave ultimately the greatest gift. God gave His Son for you. And your name will be recorded in the book of life forever and ever in the pages of God's history as belonging to Him. When the books are open, you'll be there because God gave salvation to you through the blood of His Son. God is a giver. He gives and He gives and He gives because He is full of love for mankind. He is full of love for you. Will you just pause this morning and give Him thanks and praise for the good gifts that He has poured out on you. He is caring for His exiles. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning that You gave and that You are still giving you love your people, whether we feel it right now or not. You love us, and you have committed yourself to us with an unbreakable bond. The blood of Jesus Christ has bought us. We give you praise. We would lose ourselves. We would wander if we didn't have a good shepherd. And we thank you, God, for your word that reminds us who you are leads us to recommit ourselves to live faithfully for you when opportunities to compromise are everywhere. I pray, God, you would strengthen us for the day that we live in, a day where it looks like truth has failed, a day when people do not honor you or worship you. Your name is nowhere, it seems, among men, and yet you are still at work. You have proof of that right here this morning amongst us. There are people in this room, people like Linda, who have come to know you in the last year. People who years ago thought nothing of you, gave no worship to you, no praise to you. And you came after them, one person at a time, and changed their lives as you gave them faith in Jesus Christ. We have a story like that. And so, God, we thank you this morning that you gave your Son and you gave salvation through Him. That is our story today. Now, we are not written down in your Bible, not by name anyway. But we are the ones who would come years later through faith in your Son. And we thank you, God, for him, that he went and purchased us at the cross. And we ask, God, as we prepare to leave this place this morning, that you would put your praise on our lips, that we would be filled not just for this moment, but filled with your Spirit throughout this week to see your goodness in our lives and to give you the right praise for it. 
We love you, commit all these things to you, ask you, God, to give us stronger trust in Jesus so that we might live for you in this world without compromise. And we ask it in his name. Amen. If you would, please stand to your feet. We'll sing the doxology, a word of praise, hopefully with gusto, and we'll be dismissed. Reminder, those who have signed up to work,